I want to ask you this morning, if you would, to open your Bibles. And if you didn't bring a Bible, there may be a Bible on a rack in front of you. And I would encourage you to open it to the book of Romans, chapter 8. We're going to read a little bit from 8 and a little bit from 7. If you're thinking, I don't know where Romans is, you're in luck because I have the page number in that Bible that was on the rack in front of you. It's page 1,118. Page 1,118. If you have a smartphone, um, there's a Bible app event for this. Uh, You can find it that way as well. Romans chapter 8. And I just kind of want to warn you, we're going to be reading that later in the message. Okay, I'm going to give you some other scriptures, but I really, really, really love you to see the text as I read it in probably about 10 minutes when we get to that part of the message, okay? Romans chapter 8 is where we'll be in a few minutes, all right? This is um, this is the second sermon in a series on lies that even seasoned Christians believe. You know what I mean by seasoned Christians? Those of us that have been around a while, we're not rookies at this. We've been doing this a little while. And 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 we sometimes feel like, well, I got my act together. I don't have to worry about this. I, you know, I'm glad the preacher's preaching, you know, and people need that teaching, but I've been around, you know. Well, I feel that way sometimes myself, and I realize that's generally not accurate. Because even someone who's been going to church since my infancy, even even before I was uh, born, I know that my mom had, and dad had me in church. Um, even, even as someone who's been around for a long time, these are the kind of lies that, that I struggle with and that my peers struggle with, and probably some of you struggle with these lies. That is evident in last week's message, because as I greeted you at the door, so many of you shook my hand and said, wow, that sermon was for me, Pastor. And by the way, I never do that. I never look like Robbie Tubbs really needs this sermon, so I'm going to write it. I don't. In fact, if I feel like Robbie needs that sermon, I'll probably not write that sermon, because that would not be, I don't feel like that would be right. You know, pick on poor Robbie, such a nice guy. We'll just let Sarah pick on him instead. Okay, yeah. But sometimes you can feel that way, like, wow, that sermon was for me. And last week's sermon, a number of people said that, that it really clicked with them. I think this sermon is for a number of us as well, even for me, just as last week's was for me. I think it, it might click with you. It's a lie that even seasoned Christians tend to believe. To introduce it, I want to talk to you about a friend of mine named Rick. Actually, I'll call him a fellow named Rick because I haven't seen him in decades, literally. He was a pastor uh, when I was starting out in ministry. He was starting out in ministry. We were friends together. We uh, He pastored a couple different churches over the period of maybe 10 years. Um, and he pastored just a, a little bit longer than I had. I think he was in ministry before me. Rick was a smart guy. I mean, he was sharp. You know how there are just some people that you know they are on their game all the time. And that was Rick. Back in those days, I was always ahead of the curve in technology because I had an engineering background. And so I was always doing high-tech things for that era of the 1980s. But Rick was ahead of me. And he taught me things about electronics, about audio, and about computers, and about publications that I didn't understand. And he was just there helping me along. He was a sharp guy. And he knew how to organize his church. His church was well organized. They presented the ministry well. They had a number of ministries going on at the same time. And he had organized those things in a very creative way. He had rallied people around those things. And their church was really helping people in their community. It was like, wow, that's the it church in that town, right? And Rick was a student. He was a scholar. He was a reader. To paraphrase Second Timothy, we would say that he studied and showed himself approved as a workman who didn't need to be ashamed. He handled the word of truth correctly. He did a great job at what he did. He gave me one of the best books I ever read 
on pastoral ministry. He gave that to me, and, and it helped make me the person I am today. In fact, I would say I'm a better man today because Rick was in my life. He had the whole package. But for some reason, Rick decided, I'm done. And he left pastoral ministry altogether and never looked back. And I can remember he wasn't near me at that time, and I was reaching out to him trying to say, what's going on? What's going on? And this is kind of what I gathered. You see, there was an incident. I don't know all the details of it, but here's what I understand. Rick had words with his church governance authority, his local church. They had a falling out. And Rick told them, after all, he's smart, he's sharp, he's driven. And he told them exactly what was on his mind. He became angry with some of his denominational leaders, and he let them have it too in his denomination. And he even became angry with some of his key people who weren't in leadership in his church, and he blew up at them as well. Now, Rick could have recovered from that. In that very church, he could have recovered from that. I've said things to people I wish I hadn't, and I've recovered from that. I've had a falling out with leadership in my church, and I've recovered from that. I've had a disagreement with denominational executives, and always I've recovered from those things. But Rick never repented. He never made amends. And he never continued to serve Jesus. He just kind of disappeared. I think to myself, why? Was he too angry? Did he find something better? What, what was it that, that happened there? I'm sure there are a lot of reasons why. But I think one of the reasons that Rick might give, because I knew Rick, I think he might have said, I've messed up too grandly. I've blown up. I screwed up. I goofed up. And... And God cannot use me to serve any longer because of this. And that's a lie. That's a lie we're talking about today. It is a lie that says I'm unusable. It's a lie of uselessness. It ended Rick's pastoral ministry. Now, Rick isn't alone. I think a lot of seasoned Christians have believed that God can't use them anymore because of some failing in their life, and they believe this lie of uselessness. And I want to kind of talk to you this morning about how does this take root? Where does this come from? How does it get into someone's life, this idea that I am useless? And first, I want to say that it often occurs when you're struggling with sin. I want to say this, struggling with sin, that's not a bad thing. Caving to sin, that's a bad thing. But the struggle, okay. It often comes when you're struggling with sin. And that was a case for Rick. Rick had struggled with a temper that he wasn't controlling well. And he had struggled with, with impatience with individuals and with groups of individuals. And yet, through the years of his ministry, those things did not prevent him from being successful. He was a successful church pastor. That struggle did not make him useless to the kingdom. The struggle with sin. It does not make you useless to God. I mean, think of the people in the Bible that you can just probably name off the top of your head who have struggles with sin, not maybe just once or twice, but sometimes throughout their life. You know, one of the people I think of is David. He struggled with sin, you know. Pretty big sin. A couple of them, right? And yet, 
he has written some of the most beloved words in all of Scripture. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. David, the guy who struggled with sin, wrote those words. And even toward the end of his life, he amassed all the material that would be necessary to build the grandest temple that was ever built by men to worship the Most High God. He repented and was careful not to buy into the lie that his failures, and in his case, his moral failure, was not fatal in terms of his uselessness or usefulness in the kingdom of God. There's more than just David, though. You see New Testament examples all the time. Think of Simon Peter. (laughs) He was one who struggled with sin. I mean, if Jesus looks at you and says, Get behind me, Satan. You're probably having a struggle with sin. It's just part of the nature of it. We know that he had a struggle with sin right up to the very end. Because there's Peter on the night that Jesus was betrayed. And Jesus comments, you know that all of you will forsake me. And Peter arrogantly says, even if everyone else does, not me. My commitment, it's solid. And Jesus says to him those words that make me so sad. It's probably my least favorite part of that story. Peter, Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. And you're going to deny me, not once, but three times before morning when you hear the rooster crow. And then listen to what Jesus says at the end, though. What Jesus says is that this failure, this sin on your part, does not make you useless to me. In fact, well, let me just read it. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. There's utility there. You're going to struggle with sin, Peter. You're going to fail in your struggle with sin. But when you repent, when you turn back, you will have great value in the kingdom. And he did. I mean, Peter was a leader in the church and then Peter wrote 1 Peter and 2 Peter. And it's not because he didn't get the first one right, you understand. They're both of value. Peter struggled with sin, but that did not make him useless. Here's a third one. It's the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul wrote more of the New Testament than any other one author. Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. You know, a lot of books, a lot of pen, a lot of Scripture. And yet in the midst of all that, he says to the Christians in Philippi, by the way, I want you to know I haven't arrived yet. And then he says this, he says, I press on to take hold of the goal. I press on. And that word, press on, that phrase, press on, carries with it the idea of struggle. This is a struggle for me. But just because it's a struggle for me, just because this is not easy for me, just because I am sometimes, and I don't know that Paul would say these exact words, but I'll say them, just because sometimes I really struggle with sin does not mean I am useless. It didn't mean that for Paul. It doesn't mean that for you. David, Peter, Paul, none of them chose to believe the lie that Rick believed. The lie of uselessness. That lie often comes when we struggle with sin. It comes as well when we struggle with our own abilities. Some people believe the lie of uselessness because they believe they don't have any abilities, they don't have any talent, they don't 
They don't have any gifts. And you've probably heard people say it. I have heard people say it. Particularly if you're doing a study on the spiritual gifts, someone will say, I don't have any gift. I don't have any talent. I don't, I, and, and they're saying I'm useless. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because it's just so, it's so wrong. It hardly bears refutation. <laughs> but let me just give you some scripture that shows you that the Bible says that every person who has turned their heart toward Jesus has an ability, at least one, that is supernatural in its origin and is given by the Holy Spirit. I know you're in Romans, so stay there because I'm going to put this on the screen. We're going to get to Romans soon, okay? But when, when the Apostle Paul is writing to Christians in Corinth regarding these special abilities, he says these words. He says, all of these are the, are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. Do you see that? Just as he determines, he gives everyone the gift that they need. Who has the gifts of the Spirit? Each one, as God determines. So if you follow Jesus, the lie of uselessness that says, you don't have anything to offer the kingdom, does not apply to you, because you do. However, if you haven't found your gift, or if you won't accept your gift, or if you don't like your gift because you wish you had a different gift, or if you just say, I know what my gift is, but I don't feel like losing, using my gift, then you will struggle with usefulness in the kingdom. And you'll struggle with this lie. You'll potentially believe the lie of uselessness. And basically, the lie of uselessness comes whenever you're struggling, period. Whenever you're struggling, you are vulnerable to the lie of uselessness, much more so than if you weren't struggling. Now, I kind of want to take a a shot at trying to understand this lie of uselessness. And I want to suggest to you that it's based on unreasonable demands. Okay? And, and we really need to watch out for unreasonable demands in every area of our life, in the area of sports. I guarantee you, if you go out for a sport in high school, in college, in elementary school, your coach will make unreasonable demands of you. You know? Hey, Thanksgiving, I want you here at noon for practice. That's not reasonable. I'm not going to be here till after hunting season. We'll see you then, you know? Right? Unreasonable demands are part of the workplace. Your employer, if he's not a godly man, he will push you and push you to an unreasonable position in the area of academics. You will find yourself pushed at times to do unreasonable things. This unreasonable demand thing is something that's in all of our culture. Sadly, it's in churches. It shows up in churches. And people who grew up in religious environment need to watch for this often because we love our church. And we love to have grown up in that culture. Often, we don't see how unreasonable the demands are. Particularly if we've been in church as I have since my infancy, we may be, that's all we're accustomed to. And so we don't see how unreasonable some of the demands are. And then when someone suggests, you know, maybe you're being too hard on yourself because maybe you've been exposed to some unreasonable demands. If you're like me, you tend to dismiss it. No, 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 no. And you might even be defended by it. Oh, I didn't grow up in a church like that. Why are you saying that? I grew up in a good church, you know? But here's the reality. Listen to this carefully. Religious people, some very good and well-intentioned, often make unreasonable demands of their own kind. It just happens. And sometimes it's not the good people that do that. Sometimes there are people in religious organizations and other organizations as well 
that have this kind of twisted thing that they feel like this yoke, this burden of, of this organization, of this religion, is a heavy thing that you should be enduring. My daughter experienced something like that when she was in a Christian college. She gave me permission to share this with you. So my daughter was going to Christian college. She was a freshman, I believe. She was, um, she might have been a sophomore. She was the person who headed up the prayer time for all the girls in a girls' dorm. She was doing her devotions regularly. She had made a rule that I so admire because I was always doing homework on Sunday nights. She made a rule that all her homework would be done by Saturday night because she wanted to do nothing but worship God on Sunday. She was living a good Christian life. And someone opened up an email account on Yahoo for the sole purpose of writing an email to her telling her she was not living up to their standards of holiness and sent it to her. When our phone rang that night, she was crying. Maybe I'm not doing this good. I want to serve God. I want to help him, but they say I'm not. And it was, it was awful. And her big brother and her dad wanted to hunt down that person. <laughs> I mean, we brought all the technology that the two of our minds had, to, and we found out where they lived, but we didn't find out who it was. <laughs> and naturally, that was hurtful to her. Through counsel with her mom and other people who loved her, she walked through that. But hear this. That could have been destructive to her. If she had believed the lie of uselessness, she might have stopped pursuing ministry that moment. And she might have just done whatever she wanted to do. Because I can't measure up. I can't serve God. Because of this unrealistic expectation. Hmm. It didn't just happen to her. It's happened to me. It's maybe happened to you. Some people make unrealistic demands of pastors. At this age, I, I, I'm at a place where I listen to the person. I thank them for their, for their concern. I pray about it. If the demand's reasonable, I deal with it. If it's unreasonable, I let it go. I just go from there. The religious people of Jesus, they did this all the time. They did it to him. They had this demand that he should repent because he healed someone on the Sabbath. Don't you know the Sabbath is a day of rest, Jesus? What are you doing out there healing people? Repent. That's an unreasonable demand right there. And Jesus calls the religious leadership of his day to task for this idea when he says in Luke chapter 11, in verse 46, you experts of the law, woe to you because you load people down with heavy burdens they can hardly carry and you yourself will not lift a finger to help them. What's he saying? You have unreasonable demands and you're throwing them on people's back like a heavy yoke that they'll never be able to carry. Unreasonable demands are a basis for the lie of uselessness. And the lie of uselessness kind of creates an atmosphere of insecurity. Now we're going to get to Romans chapter 8. I know you opened your Bible so long ago, the pages are starting to curl, right? Uh, it's just been that so long. Before we read, let me say this. When you're trying to live up to unrealistic expectations, you will never be secure. You will always be worried. You will always be self-conscious. You'll always be checking. It's kind of like the woman that has a dress that doesn't fit her quite right, you know? And she's always like, you know, this, because I'm not sure that this is fitting me the way it should. And she's just never comfortable in it, right? That's what unrealistic, unreasonable demands are like for you and me. I want to show you one of the most powerful statements in Scripture to give you a sense of security. It's in Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read to you nine verses, starting in verse 31. I'd like you to follow along as I read. And then we're going to go to chapter 7 and read maybe four or five verses there. 
But follow along, starting in verse 31. And hear this. The Apostle Paul is the man who God is breathing these words to write. Listen to what it says. What shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep for the slaughter. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of God's creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I want you to think of those words. I want you to think of what he's saying there. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Romans chapter 8. But let's get a little context here and let's back up to Romans chapter 7 and see that the very writer who was so convinced that there was absolutely nothing that could separate him from the love of God that was in Christ Jesus the Lord, look what he writes back in chapter 7 and verse 21. He says, So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner to the law of sin within me. And then he says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? I think that part of what he is saying there is that if you have unreasonable demands in your life regarding your spiritual life and you demand that you live this certain way or you are useless to the kingdom, you're living on very shaky ground. And you will feel insecure and you have every reason to feel insecure. That's what Romans 7 says. And you will cry out like Paul and say, who will deliver me from this, from this, from this? Who will rescue me from this? That, for Paul, that insecurity drove him to the grace of God. And he said, I can't deliver myself. And my usefulness cannot be based in who I am on my own and what I do. It has to be based in the love of God demonstrated through Christ Jesus our Lord. It has to be. It has to be. Can you see the nature of the lie of usefulness? How it creates this atmosphere of insecurity? And can you see how it leads to an unproductive life? That's kind of a no-brainer, right? (laughs) You know, I knew a teacher one time who who was a great teacher and, and took an early retirement because they, they said, you know what, I, I began teaching because I felt like I could make a difference. But the system and the students and the parents and everything else have made it so that I am completely unproductive in doing what I want to do as a teacher. And so I'm retiring. I'm going to golf. I'm going to hunt. I'm going to fish. I'm watching the Olympics. Okay, golfing, hunting, fishing, that's all good. But I want to tell you, you didn't move from teaching to those things and become productive. You're still unproductive because the lie of uselessness 
makes you unproductive. Now, the only way to deal with this lie of uselessness is through the freedom that comes through truth. Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. And He would set you free from the lie of uselessness through His very own teaching, through His shed blood on the cross, through His very person. If you want this freedom, you're going to have to take Jesus' yoke to get it. Now, if you were here Sunday evening, I'm borrowing this part of this message from part of Sunday evening's message, so this is a review for those of you that were here this past Sunday. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You've probably heard that a yoke, as Jesus is using that word there, refers to a rabbi's teaching. So one of the more well-known rabbis of the first century was a man named Gamaliel. And there were people who said, I really like Gamaliel's teaching. I have taken on the yoke of Gamaliel. And they would take his teaching as their own. And somebody else, someone more radical, might say, I like John the Baptist. I think he tells it like it is. I am taking John the Baptist's yoke. He is my teacher. I carry the yoke of John the Baptist. Sometimes that yoke could be a heavy thing. Sometimes it could be very harsh. Depending on the rabbi you followed, it could be very laborious to do this. And that yoke, that teaching could be filled with unrealistic demands that you're like, I can never do that. I can never do that. And then you're going to begin to begin to lie. I'm useless in the kingdom because I can't do the things that my yoke is requiring. And then you have Jesus who comes along, who in verse 30 says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And you're like, wow, what does that mean? Does that mean you have no demands, Jesus? No, no. Think of the rich young ruler or the rich young man who's spoken of in uh, the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 10. And you know that he saw that Jesus' yoke carried some demands and he wasn't willing to accept them and he went away sad because of that. So it's not that Jesus doesn't make any demands. He does. But when Jesus says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, I understand him to be saying is the teaching that I have here for you is not defeating to your spirit. I'm not here to snuff out your spirit and make you feel useless. (laughs) Not at all. The yoke of Jesus does not push you down. It picks you up. The yoke of Jesus does not cover you and heap guilt on top of you. It digs you out from that pile of guilt. The yoke of Jesus does not make you shrink with shame. The yoke of Jesus causes you to expand with gratitude. He did that for me. It may seem counterintuitive for Jesus to say to you, if you feel burdened, pick up my yoke. But what Jesus is saying is drop this heavy obligation of unrealistic and unrealistic expectations that make you feel useless and take my teaching. Because my teaching is that you cannot be perfect. That's why I'm going to the cross to pay for your imperfections so you can be free. And my teaching is really simple. It's just this. Love God. Love one another. Love God. Love one another. Love God. Love one another. All the law, all the prophets, everything there is hangs on that. And that's my yoke. 
if you want freedom from the lie of uselessness, then maybe you're going to have to commit yourself to the yoke of Jesus. Maybe you're going to have to set down the unrealistic expectations that came to you, maybe even from people you love, and say, you know what? I don't have to be under that burden. I'm taking the yoke of Jesus. That in Him I am righteous. And I am going to love God and I am going to love people. You might have to recommit yourself to the yoke of Jesus. And when you do that, you will find a security in Jesus' love. (laughs) And that's where security comes from. So I have a good friend who is a pastor and some of you know him. I'm not going to name him publicly because I don't have permission to share this story but I'd probably tell you privately if you knew him because he would be glad if his story would help you. He was pastoring a church in our area, not in Clearfield County, but when I say our area, I mean in the state of Pennsylvania. It was a successful church. It was a growing church. It was a beautiful church. It was a healthy church. And in the middle of his ministry, his unmarried daughter had a child. And do you think, so how should a pastor manage that? And he had heard... (laughs) He heard the ideas that, well, if a man can't manage his own health well, then how can he manage the kingdom of God? That's in the Bible. And, and I'm guessing that there were people that said that to him, you are useless in ministry now, you know, because of what your daughter did. You're, you're, you, and, and others, others probably secretly felt that way. Now, if my friend's security was in how well he lived his Christian life and did his pastoral ministry and managed his family, then that would have been crushing to him. But he was able to walk through that time, recommitting himself to his family and to his ministry, and he stayed in that church till nearly his retirement. He stayed, and that church thrived under his ministry. Because he didn't believe the lie of uselessness. He didn't find his security in the circumstances of his family or even of his ministry, he found his security in the cross of Jesus Christ. And you will only, only dismiss the law, I'm sorry, the lie of uselessness if you are singularly convinced that your only security is the death of Jesus Christ on your behalf. That is the only way you'll find the freedom. And if the Son sets you free, You're free indeed. You're free indeed. Every now and then someone will say to me when I explain the Gospel how they can be forgiven for their sin, Pastor, I hear what you're saying about Jesus dying for my sins, but you don't know what I've done. True. (laughs) I don't know what you've done. Frankly, I don't want to know what you've done. But here's what I do know. I know that God, in the person of Jesus Christ, hung on a cross and died for your sin. What could you possibly do that would make that sacrifice inadequate. (laughs) Nothing. Nothing. If you want to be free from the lie of uselessness, you're going to have to lean into the security of Jesus Christ and Him alone. And you're going to have to do what you're gifted to do. Not because that's what makes you useful that you're doing what you're gifted to do, but that's what makes you feel the joy and pleasure of Christ. I say this almost every Sunday. I said it to Jim. I said it to Dave Clark. Stand in the back. I get to preach in a few minutes. (laughs) Because that's what I feel like I'm gifted to do. I find such joy in it. I don't, I don't want to find significance in it. I want to find that in Jesus. But I want to find joy in serving the way He has me to serve. And that sets aside, demolishes any lie 
of uselessness. I told you before, I feel like this lie is particularly damaging. The first law that we described, I'm alone, that we talked about last week, that does hurt you personally and has ramifications to your relationships. But this lie, I am useful, it doesn't just damage you. It damages those that God would have you influence. Rick decided he was useless in the kingdom. And all of those other people he could have influenced for Christ. Huh. It's kind of like so much of our behavior that we feel like we can do whatever we want to do or, or we can believe whatever we want to believe and it won't hurt other people and it's not a problem. When I think of that, I think of dominoes. I, I think of, you know, those, those videos on YouTube where somebody sets up these dominoes that go every which way but loose. There's one where, where I don't know how they did it, but they spent all these hours putting these dominoes together. And when they pushed the first domino, it went throughout their entire house, into other rooms of their house, into the kitchen and into the bedroom and all over the place in their house. One domino had that kind of an impact. Our lives are like that. Our lives are like that. And if you believe that you're not useful in the kingdom of God, you're a domino that's not moved. And the rest of the dominoes suffer. <laughs> right? It's a bad lie. Don't believe it. Find freedom by taking the yoke of Jesus. It's light. Love God. Love people. Trust in His work on the cross for your sins to cover for all your failings. That doesn't mean you take failings lightly. It doesn't mean you don't confess your sin. It doesn't mean you don't repent of it. It means you do not allow it to define you. And do what you're gifted to do so that you'll receive blessing. People around you receive blessing. And God will receive glory. I want to pray that you can do that. Let's bow our hearts together. Father in heaven, we recognize we are useless apart from the person and work of Jesus. But because of him, because of him, we have a call, we have gifts, we have mission, we have focus. pray you will free us from the lies and that we would embrace the truth I pray that we would take your yoke and discard unrealistic demands. I pray that we would lean heavily into the cross of Jesus and not measure our nature by the struggles that we have, but measure them by the victory He gave us. I pray, Father, that we can do the things we do joyfully and loving them because of all that Christ is, has done for us, and does do through us. In His name I pray. Amen. Set a fire down in my soul That I can't contain, that I can't control I want more of you